Welcome to a History of Submarines podcast. Episode 5.6, The High Water Mark. Last time, we talked about how the USA ended the war, how Germany started Operation Drumbeat on the eastern seaboard, and it was quite effective in sinking many ships. Then I received some emails from some of you after a light criticism I aimed at the U.S. Navy over its massive failure to protect merchants and convoys, criticism that is also very much leveled at the Americans by naval historians, much, much more knowledgeable in this matter than I am. U.S. naval operations during World War II were and are obviously much discussed, including the period of 1942 and 1943 on the East Coast. Some of you pointed out that it's all good and well to criticize the U.S. Navy for its lack of convoy protection, but that much of it was owing to the dearth of destroyers and long-range aircraft. Now, of course, I did allude to this when I mentioned that the U.S. Navy at some point requested that Britain send over several corvettes. Yes, there was a shortage of all kinds of ships, and like said, the U.S. Navy had a lot of water to cover. But still, there is no denying that they could have used their assets better, that they could have switched to convoy protection faster or more efficient. I am not going to state here that the jury is still out in this debate or anything like that, because like said, I think greater minds put this debate to bed long ago, using sound arguments and data. I made a real and much more grievous mistake, I think, when I promised you at the end of episode 5.4, The Sun Rises, that I would continue talking about the war in the Pacific Theater in episode 5.5. And of course, listening to 5.5, you probably noticed quite quickly that it was all, or mostly, about the Battle of the Atlantic. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. I only just realized. I guess I got a bit carried away. Uh, I'll make it up to you in this episode. So... Spinning the globe west and viewing what went on in the Pacific, there are already telltale signs that the Japanese submarine fleet would not be able to add much to the Japanese war effort. Here, the shoe would be on the other foot. It would be the U.S. Navy and its silent service submarines that would help to bring Japan to its knees in the way Carl Dennett could only have dreamed of regarding Great Britain. In the weeks and months after Pearl Harbor, U.S. submarines would not add much of note to the U.S. war effort in the Pacific. You'll remember how we talked in episode 5.4 about how U.S. submarine commanders are mostly a conservative lot, risk-averse and careful to toe the line instead of being dashing go-getters like the German U-boat captains. It would take months for U.S. command to realize that the older, careful captains needed to be replaced by more brash, younger ones. At the same time, submarine captains discovered that, almost exactly like their German counterparts early in the war, they went into battle with mostly faulty torpedoes. Navies all over the world were improving the side armor of their warships, adding ever thicker armor on the sides, also to protect against torpedo attacks. Unlike the Germans, to counter this, used torpedo designers had come up with magnetic de detonators attached to large warheads. These would dive underneath the hull of the warship, where armor was still thin, and then detonate the warhead, hopefully causing the warship to break up and sink. Another advantage was that fewer torpedoes would be needed for a kill. Inexplicably, peacetime live-fire training exercises had been few, and like with many concepts that don't survive the first five minutes of any battle or war, so American submarine commanders, like their German counterparts, would to their fury and frustration discover that many of their torpedoes turned out to be either duds or exploded prematurely. 
The magnetic detonators really were smart compass systems that would react to large metal hulks like the hull of a ship. The torpedoes would have to be activated sometime after being fired by the submarines, lest the detonators think that the metal hull of the submarine close by was that trigger. One American submarine discovered this when, returning from the first patrol near the Japanese home islands, the captain wanted to take down a Japanese destroyer. He fired two torpedoes, but they both exploded shortly after exiting the torpedo tubes, causing damage to the submarine, but also, of course, alerting the destroyer, which pummeled the sub with depth charges. Fortunately, the submarine survived and limped back home. But where U.S. subcommanders seemed risk-averse, Japanese captains appeared, shall we say, overconfident. The first Japanese warship sunk by the Americans would be a submarine, the I-70 of the Kaidai-6 type of long-range fleet submarines commanded by Takao Sano. The I-70 and nine other submarines laid in wait in a semicircle off Oahu to sink ships trying to escape the onslaught at Pearl Harbor on December 7th and after. I-70 did not find any targets in the first two days after the attack, but late on December 9, reported sighting an American aircraft carrier to the northeast of Oahu, escorted by two cruisers. It was the last report of the I-70. Sano had reported sighting the Lexington aircraft carrier, but he had made a mistake. It was actually the USS Enterprise. The I-70 was spotted on the surface by a dauntless dive bomber of Enterprise around 6 in the morning, December 10. I-70 was likely recharging her batteries. The dive bomber immediately attacked and damaged the sub, preventing it from submerging. Out of bombs, the Dauntless departed. A few hours later, another Dauntless sighted the submarine and attacked, while submarine crew desperately tried to defend themselves with light anti-aircraft gun. A bomb exploded close to the sub amidships. The Dauntless pilot later reported large oil slicks emanating from the submarine, and then the sub disappearing below the waves, followed by more big oil slicks and debris. So, three days after Pearl Harbor, the first Japanese warship sunk by Americans was a submarine, and it was sunk by plane. The naval battles between Japan and America would be decided by aircraft, but in the Pacific, it would be the U.S. submarines that would help bring Japan to its knees. This was symbolized by yet another sinking of a Japanese submarine, the I-173, this time by a U.S. submarine. The I-173 was a sister ship of the earlier mentioned I-70, but Japanese high command had decided to add a 1 to the number so that all submarines would have identification numbers consisting of three digits. The I-173 was commanded by Akira Isobe. The submarine was also the lead submarine of the 20th Submarine Division, and so she had Division Commander Captain Toshio Otake aboard. I-173 would also be the first submarine to be tracked by American codebreakers, who led U.S. submarine USS Gudgeon, one of the Tamper-class new fleet submarines commanded by Captain Elton Grenfell, to the demise of I-173. And now is probably a good time to tell you a bit about those U.S. codebreakers. Like the British in the Atlantic, Americans had been reading most of the enemy's naval code since before the outbreak of war. Like the Germans, Japanese had compartmentalized its various codes for the different branches of the armed forces. The most important code became known as JN-25, named for the 25th code identified by the Americans. Decrypting Japanese encryption was by no means a purely American business. Like with almost everything else in World War II, Allied cooperation made a difference. The Americans had been breaking Japanese codes ever since World War I, when they simply copied the codebook by burgling a Japanese diplomatic mission. The burglars photographed the pages from the codebook, and the photos were then kept in the code-breaking offices in red binders. It was why the code soon became known as the Red Code. 
Throughout the interbellum, the Americans had been breaking and rebreaking Japanese encryption and using their advanced knowledge of Japanese thinking during the difficult negotiations for arms reduction treaties. Of course, the Japanese weren't stupid, and they changed the added differentials to their codes often, forcing the American eavesdroppers to start over. Still, the Americans were always quickly able to decipher much of it. Shortly before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese changed the codes for JN-25 again, and the attacking carrier fleet kept total radio silence until the moment of the attack. As a result, Americans didn't know what hit them until the first reports of planes and explosions. After Pearl Harbor, the codebreakers worked round the clock to decipher the changed JN-25 encryption. It helped them a great deal that now that the war had started, Japanese ships, submarines, and headquarters were filling their airways with repeated material. The stratosphere was abuzz with radioed messages the codebreakers could harvest to look for clues. It quadrupled the workload, but also offered results faster. It also helped the Japanese naval doctrine was highly centralized. Mama Tokyo always wanted to have her chickens to report in. This helped the Americans and Allies to locate Japanese naval traffic, and such is was with I-173. Whether Division Captain Otake wanted to impress Tokyo or whether he was simply overconfident is something we will never know, but whatever the reason, he liked to shell enemy islands using the deck guns of the three submarines in his division, the 171, 172, and 173, during the trip to area of operations. Thanks to this and the submarine's constant chattiness, the American codebreakers on signal triangulators could track the submarines and match their presence with the pointless attacks on Johnston Island, which lies between the Marshall Islands and Hawaii. The I-173 managed to knock down a telegraph pole, injuring a U.S. Marine. The I-173 returned to the Kwajalein Atoll, then a major base for the Imperial Japanese Navy in the Marshall Islands, and then on January 12th departed again, heading toward Hawaii to relieve other submarines that had been lying in wait for U.S. surface ships. Now that the codebreakers and signal intelligence unit knew who was what, they could quite accurately track the submarine and report its position to U.S. Navy units. The job to take down I-173 and her sister submarines fell to USS Gudgeon. The course and speed and the timing of the submarine's arrival was almost down to the minute. Grenfell spotted the submarine sailing on the surface, fired three torpedoes at her from the stern tubes, and not long after, the Gudgeon's crew heard two distinct explosions. When Grenfell peeked through his periscope again, I-173 had disappeared. The sinking of the I-173 by the Gudgeon was the first sub-unsub action of the Pacific War. More would follow, but U.S. submarines would focus on Japanese merchants and transports. Japanese strategy and tactics, meanwhile, were hard to understand, at least to U.S. Navy strategists. While the U.S. changed strategy from involving submarines in a decisive sea battle, switching to unrestricted submarine warfare against Japanese lines of communication and supply transports instead, Japan didn't seem to know what it expected from its submarine force. Whereas U.S. strategy had first been to move its Pacific fleet in the direction of the Philippines and take on a Japanese fleet in one major battle, as the Americans fully expected Japan to invade the strategically important Philippines, now this wasn't happening. Instead, American strategy now had three pillars. First, deny the Japanese control of the sea by meeting them head-on whenever they went on the offensive and take out their carriers and battleships. Second, leapfrog to Japan by either retaking islands or strategic value Japan had taken early in the war, or had garrisoned before the war started, while bypassing remote islands and isolating them from resupply and so starving the garrisons there. Third, engage a submarine fleet to literally sink supply lines to the Japanese-occupied territories in the Pacific, mostly islands, obviously, 
and starved Japan by preventing resources and supplies from reaching the home islands. Japan's strategy was indeed difficult to follow. Now that there was no American onslaught to be expected, submarines seemed to be playing second fiddle. The conservative and traditional mechanistic focus on service fleet battles reigned, and now Americans were going to challenge Japan mainly with naval aircraft battles. Submarines were pushed to the fringes, so to speak. During the war, Japanese submarines seemed to be doing all kinds of things instead of focusing what could have been promising, tearing up Allied lines of communication and attacking invasion fleets. Like the Japanese garrisons on the islands, American marines taking those islands would need to be resupplied. With every air base on each island the Americans took, bringing them closer to Japan, came a steady flow of supply ships delivering bombs, bullets, fuel, and reinforcements, and so on. Yet to the astonishment of American submarine strategists like Vice Admiral Charles Lockwood, Japan seemed hell-bent on wasting her submarines while also throwing scarce resources on building Frankenstein submarines like the I-400 monstrosities. These were the 122-meter or 400-feet-long submarine aircraft carriers, capable of carrying three seaplanes. These so-called submarine aircraft carriers were to carry out terror airstrikes on the American coasts. They were conceived by Isoroko Yamamoto, who clearly didn't hold much faith in how well the Japanese carrier fleets would do against the Americans, because if he did, then why design aircraft carriers that would submerge? The three I-400 submarines that would eventually be built would not see action before the war ended. Earlier in the war, Japan would also use some of her submarines for harassment of the U.S. coast because it could never be more than just that, harassment. On December 14, Naval High Command directed nine submarines to get close to the U.S. western coast and used their deck guns to shell targets on December 25, Christmas Eve. Like all such attacks using submarines, they were unlikely to cause much damage, but it was hoped that these sudden attacks would damage the American public's morale, so shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, it shook the nation. Among the nine submarines was I-17, a Type B-1 submarine commanded by Lieutenant Commander Kozo Nishino. The B-1s were an improved version of the Kaidai-6 long-range fleet submarines we talked about earlier. A little longer than the U.S. Tambor-class submarines of the same period, the B-1 subs carried a seaplane, which the crew could use to scout the ocean for targets. The scout plane would then land beside the service submarine, a crane would hoist the plane aboard for it to be stowed in the plane hangar, upon which the sub would attack the enemy ships the plane had spotted. I-17 was also the first Japanese submarine to sink a U.S. merchant ship, taking down the Emidio 6,000-ton oil tanker some 10 nautical miles west of Cape Mendocino, California, on December 20, 1942. Unfortunately for the Japanese, various problems prevented submarines from sticking to the timetable. First, the Christmas Eve surprise had to be postponed to December 27. After that, some submarines were forced to abort the mission due to low fuel. Then the entire mission was called off, and I-17 returned to Kwajalein Atoll to resupply. Then I-17 set up with several other subs to patrol south of Hawaii, but it was ordered to move to the west coast and shell targets there. While en route, the men in the submarine reviewed a list of possible targets, including San Francisco Harbor, but settled on Elwood, off Santa Barbara, because of the presence of oil fields there. And so they did. Commander Nishino serviced I-17 just as the sun was setting, allowing the last dim light to illuminate possible targets, and had his men fire the oil tanks and equipment. The shelling didn't do much damage, and although aircraft and destroyers set out to find I-17, she got away. But the shelling caused such a panic along the west coast that a day later the so-called and quite bizarre Battle of Los Angeles ensued. Los Angeles was surrounded by anti-aircraft artillery, and on the night of 24 on 25 February, 
Air sirens wailed several times, putting air defenders on edge. Since December, all the news had been about the seemingly invincible Japanese invading half the Pacific, and of course attacking Pearl Harbor. And now they were actually attacking the mainland. Everybody was completely stressed out. Anything could happen. When an unidentified aircraft was reported over Los Angeles, panic broke. Searchlights went up, and around 3 a.m., one A battery opened fire into the night sky, which was the sign for other batteries to join the fray. Some 1,400 shells were fired over the city. Fragments and shells landed in the city, of course, causing five deaths and damaged the buildings, which only added to the fears of an ongoing Japanese attack. Three other persons died in car crashes amid the chaos. So the attack by I-17 itself hadn't done much, but it did help to trigger a chain reaction that clearly hit morales. Newspapers and radio stations reported about the ruckus for days after. Ishino returned to Japan, claiming to also have sunk two oil tankers, although after the war, records showed only one was actually sunk. Another feat came on June 6th in the aftermath of the Battle of Midway. Again, codebreakers and signal intelligence had played a major part in informing U.S. Pacific Command of what was about to happen. U.S. aircraft carrier Yorktown had barely survived the last Japanese air attack of the battle. After some hasty repairs and shedding weight, the salvage crew had managed to stop her listing, and she was now under tow. A Japanese seaplane had spotted Yorktown in the distance, and her position was relayed to I-168, a submarine of the Kadai Type 6, commanded by Yahachi Tanabe. He slowly approached the slow-moving Yorktown, evading the destroyer screen, which was aware that an enemy submarine was in the area, as an aircraft had spotted I-168 earlier when she was surfaced. Tanabe crash-dived, made his way past the destroyer screen, and launched four torpedoes. One hit the destroyer Haman, one missed, but two were direct hits on the Yorktown, slamming holes in the starboard side. Destroyers immediately gave chase and hammered I-168 for hours, causing extensive damage inside the submarine. A room was flooded, and in the back, batteries were damaged. The salty seawater mixed with the battery acid, causing gaseous fumes. Tanabe ordered the crew to wear masks, but now half of I-168's batteries were gone, and the others were getting exhausted, while one electric engine was also out. So Tanabe decided to service and duke it out. Lucky for Tanabe and his crew, the destroyers were searching for him elsewhere. While running on diesel engines, recharging the working batteries, the crew quickly repaired the damaged electric machine. When batteries were recharged sufficiently, Tanabe submerged again and went down, slowly moving out of the area. The Yorktown did not immediately sink, but the attacks did finally put Yorktown over the edge. Saving her had become hopeless. The aircraft rolled over and then sank. It was the biggest prize for a Japanese submarine thus far in the war, and back in Japan, I-168 and Tanabe's crew received a hero's welcome. Meanwhile, the quick territorial gains in the Philippines and Guam and Wake Island and the fall of Singapore and much of the Dutch Indies pushed American and Allied submarines to Australia, where they regrouped. The older American submarines of the S-Class, belonging to the Asiatic fleet that had been based in the Philippines, had had rough months and needed reorganizing. Also, the persistent problems with American torpedoes could no longer be explained away as incidents. Something was amiss. Pacific Command forced the torpedo production company to run extensive tests, and finally it was admitted that the magnetic detonators suffered from severe problems. So, to recap, Japanese submarines were doing well, okay, they'd scored some hits, they'd given the Americans a good scare, and had sunk a major aircraft carrier. Here and there, Jap subs sank merchants and oil tankers, but mostly tried to focus on warships, as was their strategic goal. Americans had now effectively taken control over the Allied submarines in the South Pacific theater, 
including the remaining Dutch submarines, have managed to escape the Japanese invasion of the Dutch East Indies. These subs and British submarines were mainly operating in the Straits of Malacca and the South Chinese Sea, while American fleet submarines switched to their long-term mission of bleeding the Japanese homelands white and starving the garrisons on the remote islands. Over at the other end of the globe, meanwhile, Carl Dönitz decided that any chivalry had to end because of what became known as the Laconia Incident. As a result, on September 17, Dönitz gave what would become known as the infamous Laconia Order. From that moment on, he ordered U-boat commanders were strictly prohibited from aiding survivors of ships they had sunk, no matter what the conditions. Five Type 9C U-boats had set out to travel from the Bay of Biscay all the way to the waters outside Cape Town in South Africa to hunt convoys that were rounding the Cape of Good Hope. Like in World War I, Allied convoys had taken to using this route, again because of the dangers of the Mediterranean, making use of the Suez Canal Nyon impossible. Some 900 miles south of Freetown on the west coast of Africa, on September 12, U-156 of Cologne Werner Hartenstein spotted the RMS Laconia, a Cunard ocean liner of almost 20,000 tons and 600 feet or 183 meters in length. The Laconia was carrying almost 2,800 people, including some 1,800 Italian prisoners of war, 300 Allied servicemen and civilians. But the Laconia was also armed with eight guns. With that, Hartenstein categorized her as a troop ship, so outside the prize laws. Around 8 in the evening, two torpedoes Hartenstein had fired slammed into the Laconia, one of them directly in the area where the E-1800 Italian prisoners of war were being held. Many died instantly from the explosion and the water that rushed in. Chaos ensued. Lifeboats were dropped. People jumped off the ship, holding onto debris. Lifeless bodies bobbed everywhere, while the Laconia slowly started to sink. Hartenstein serviced U-156. Witnessing the carnage he'd wrought, he suddenly heard Italian voices screaming for help. Realizing that he had hit his ship carrying Axis soldiers, he ordered his men to take on survivors and radioed back to Dunitz's U-boat command HQ in Lorient, France. He could not just back away, but he also did not have enough room in his sub to take on all the survivors. Dunitz is said to have conferred with Hitler himself, and it was agreed that Dunitz could send all U-boats in the area, a total of five, to help out Hartenstein. Hartenstein himself took the initiative to go on to the open radio airwaves and announced that German U-boats were engaged in a big rescue operation, offering a temporary truce in the area so that Allied ships could come and aid in the operation. The Royal Navy, however, apparently thought this was a ruse to try and lure ships into a trap and did not respond. Vichy French destroyers did respond and started steaming toward the area. On September 15, so three days after the attack on Laconia, U-boats 506 and 507 surfaced and started taking on survivors, tying rafts together so as to tow them toward the coast. Some U-boat crewmen took photos of the chaotic scenes, the U-boats close together taking on people. It's easy to Google the photos, just look for a Laconia incident or Laconia order. Then, in the early hours of September 16, an American B-24 Liberator out of Asesion Island in the South Atlantic appeared. According to Hartenstein's logs, and corroborated by witnesses, he had a white flag with a red cross unfurled, hoping to signify what was going on. The bomber pilot radioed HQ to ask for instructions. The answer was short. He was to attack the submarines. The Liberator turned around and dropped three bombs, hoping to hit U-156. They all missed, but the message was clear. Hartenstein immediately ordered all submarines at lines to the rafts be cut to crash dive. Then the Liberator came back again, this time dropping two bombs, of which one exploded directly under the U-156, which began taking on water. 
U-156 and the other U-boats crash-dived again and later surfaced, the Liberator now gone. Hartenstein relayed what had happened to Dönitz, who was understandably furious. He was of a mind to simply abandon all the survivors, but there was still the problem of the Allied prisoners of war. Dönitz ordered that the U-boats were to take on the Italians, put the other survivors back in the rafts, but remain on station until the two Vichy destroyers had showed up. The next morning, September 17, the Lone Liberator came back again and tried to bomb U-506, which crash-dived. The bombs missed, and the U-boats in the end safely made it out of the area, while the Vichy destroyers finally arrived and took on survivors from the rafts. Other survivors in boats, though, had opted to try and make for the coast. They would spend a harrowing 25 days at sea. In all, more than 1,600 people died. Following the incident, Dönitz issued the Laconia Order. From then on, U-boat commanders had only the survival of their U-boats as their concern. Survivors were not to be picked up, no matter what. As an incentive, he reminded his captains of what the daily and nightly Allied air bombardments were doing to Germany. In all, 1942 was a high watermark for the Axis submarine forces. Germany's U-boats were wreaking havoc in the entire Atlantic, south of South Africa, in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean with their Italian allies, and even in the Indian Ocean, while in the Pacific, Japanese submarines clearly had some successes to celebrate. But as we'll see in our next episode, the happy times were about to be over. It was only downhill from here. <laughs>